You can have a seat. You know, I think almost all of us have some food that is really a temptation for us. You know that food that it really doesn't matter whether you're hungry or full. Once you smell it, you see it, then you want some, and it's really hard to stop. For me, it usually looks something like that, okay? Bread is like my weakness. I could eat bread anytime, and it is really hard for me to stop eating bread. Another one on my list is mashed potatoes. I could eat mashed potatoes every day of my life, and I would never get tired of them. You probably got something like that. Maybe it's sweets, maybe it's meat, maybe it's starch, bread, whatever. But there's something that you really want, and it is hard to say no. And it is about lunchtime, and I'm ready to eat. Okay, I don't know about you. But that's just the way, the way we're made a little bit. We have these desires within us, and we know that they can get out of hand. And it can involve food, but it can involve lots of other areas of our lives that are temptations for us. Now, you know, when we think about that, it's just part of Scripture. It's part of the Christian life. And I think there are a lot of Christians that tell people like me, at least this is my experience, that we should talk more about sin and temptation. And I think lots of non-Christians go, why do Christians talk so much about sin and temptation? What is it with the rules and regulations and why is God so worried about all the stuff I do and making sure I get what's right and wrong? What is it about Christians and all that? Well, I want us to think a little bit about that. I want us to think about how temptation works in our lives and how important it is and how to overcome that today. And to get at that, we're right in the book of James. We're in this long series that we're doing together. As we look through the book of James, some of those booklets that have the text of that book are available, I think, on either side of our foyer if you didn't get one already. Read through that. Spend some time allowing James to inform what it means for you to live the Christian life. Now, in James chapter 1, he's talking about wisdom in the Christian life. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And then we get into the section where James is talking about suffering. And he said in the passage we looked at last week, it is tough when part of life is poverty for you. And lots of Christians, early Christians came from uh, the, the parts of culture in which there were poor people. And so they dealt with that. And James says, hey, listen, just because you're poor in this life, does not mean you're going to be poor for eternity. God's going to take care of you if you're faithful. And then we jump into a section that's about, about a different kind of suffering. And I want us to hear what James has to say about this. It begins in James chapter 1, verse 12. He says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. Now, for lots of these early Christians, what he's basically saying is, I get it. I understand that because you are Christians, the culture looks at you and, man, they don't know what to do with you. And in fact, many early Christians suffered because of their faith. They had persecution in that day. And you might be dragged out of your home. And you could even be put to death because you're a Christian. And so some of the people that he's writing to... They understood that very clearly because people that they loved had faced that or they had faced some kind of arrest as Christians. And he says, it is a blessing if you stand firm in the midst of that. Because wouldn't it be really easy to say, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to follow Jesus if it means I'm going to face that kind of stuff. And he says, there's a crown of life waiting on you. 
okay? A crown of life. There is reward. Now, these people didn't earn their salvation, didn't earn heaven somehow, but he's saying God takes note. God hasn't forgotten you in the midst of suffering. And then he turns a corner a little bit because he's thinking about that temptation to fall away, that temptation not to remain faithful. And it's like it reminds James of some teaching that he's heard in the early church that needs to be dealt with. And so he says this in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So it seems that there was some misunderstanding about the nature of God in the first century, and I think we face misunderstanding about the nature of God in the 21st century. And part of what was going on then was some people said, you know, when, when bad stuff happens and when I'm facing temptation, when it feels like I'm being pulled away, you know what? Maybe God's behind that. I think the misunderstanding is in the nature of God. Think about this. In our culture, and I think probably in the, tw in the first century, there were people who thought, you know what? God's sort of like a judge sitting behind a desk, and He's looking down on us, and He just can't wait for somebody to do something wrong so He can strike us down. Or at least make life miserable for us. We have that sense that that's sort of what God is all about. And what James is telling us is, that's a faulty understanding of God. Because that's not what God wants. Now in the Old Testament, you know, we do see there are times when God tests someone. Very faithful people. And the goal of those tests was never for them to fail the test. The goal of those tests is always for them to prove themselves faithful to God. And almost always they do just that. Temptation is something different, James is saying. Because God doesn't want us to fail. God doesn't want us to sin. In fact, God is always pulling us to Him. God's wanting us to succeed in that. When we face difficult times, He wants us to remain faithful. So when we see God as just sort of this judge who wants to catch us in doing something wrong, we've misunderstood God. So then James says, okay, let's get our understanding of God right, but then... Let's think about what temptation really does look like. And he tells us that in verse 14. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James says it all begins with our own desire. So our temptation was well, not God. God doesn't tempt us. Temptation doesn't begin with God. It, it comes from within. It, it starts inside of me. Temptation begins with my own desires. Now, here's the thing. We can have lots of desires. In fact, we do. God created us with desires, right? I mean, He created us with a desire for food. Why? Because food is fuel for our bodies. God created us with a desire for water because we've got to have water to survive. God created us with a desire for sex because sex makes the species continue. God created us with a desire for, for clothes and shelter because they're needed to protect our bodies. Those are all things given to us by God. Here's the thing, when they get out of hand or when we use them outside the bounds of what God has told us to do, we get in trouble. That's when we get in trouble. When our desires 
overtake us, when we don't control them, when we maybe too often or too much give in to our desires, or again, it's outside of God's instruction, then it becomes sin. Now, the way he describes temptation and desire, he uses two words. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Honestly, not the best translation. If you have other translations with you today, you might see something different. There's two words that he says that desire sort of come after us to cause temptation to lead us to sin. The first, the first word is really like temptation is dragging us away. Okay? It's a very active word, very visual word. And, and you've probably experienced that, right? When temptation was so strong, you felt so pulled in, and it almost didn't matter what the consequences were, and it was just dragging you away from everything that mattered, from God, from your family, from relationships, from things that were really important to you. It took over and was just pulling you away, ripping you out of your context. That's one way temptation works. And then he says there's this other way. And it's more like temptation just, just subtly puts the bait out there and then lets you look. Okay? It's a much more passive way that temptation can work. And you're just looking at that and allowing that to affect your mind and then you go for it and it's like a trap. I think many of us have experienced desire, temptation, and sin in both of those ways. Sin is powerful. Temptation is powerful. And that's James's point, okay? It, it comes from within us because there are desires. Some of them God-given. Some of them are evil in and of themselves. But they, they lead us to temptation, and that takes us to sin. And that's what he tells us at the end here. Verse 15. This is the progression he gives us. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And it is destructive. That's what James sees here, and we see it as well. That it begins with desire, which may or may not be bad in itself, okay? God doesn't use that to, pull us, to push us away from Him. Sometimes Satan is at work in that stuff within us to strengthen it, to make it stronger so it pulls us in. That leads us to sin. Okay? We, we've chosen to do something wrong. We've made that decision. And that sin can lead us to destruction, to death. And that's the way it works, right? And we know that there are sins that can lead to literal physical death or to spiritual death. All right? That's the way it works. That's the goal of Satan, to take something, maybe it's even something God-given, and use it to destroy us. Okay? That's the progression that James gives us in this passage. And I think the lesson for us is just this. Don't let desire destroy you. Okay? Don't let desire destroy you. Whether it's a good desire, God-given, something that we need, or whether it's something that's not so God-given, don't let it overtake you and, and lead you to physical or spiritual death. Now, how do we do that? That sounds good. 
That sounds right. But what are the practical implications of that? And that's what I want us to think about for just a few minutes. Four things that I think we can practically do to keep desire from destroying us. All in this context of what James is telling us here. The first one is this. Confess the sins of the past. This is where it begins. When we think about our own sin, our natural inclination is not confession, not to say I'm a sinner. Our natural inclination is let's keep it a secret, right? I'm not going to tell anybody. I want people to think I'm a good person. I want people to think I'm a strong person. I can overcome temptation. I want them to think the very best about me. If they find out what I've done, if they find out who I really am, then what? Maybe I won't be accepted. Maybe I won't be loved. Maybe people will turn away from me. And so, we push it down. And we pretend like it's not there. And maybe just like we can fool people into thinking we're better people than we really are, maybe I can fool God. Maybe I can hide my sins so carefully even God won't notice. Maybe I can hide my sins so carefully I won't notice. If I hide it enough, if I push it far enough down, I can pretend that it's not part of who I am. The problem with that is, first of all, it's not true. Second, we set ourselves up for future failure when we ignore the sins of the past. When we fail to confess the sins that we have committed, we are setting ourselves up to do the same thing in the future. We have this decision to make. Am I going to confess what really is sin? And this is what I mean by that. To go to God and say, what I did yesterday, what I did last week, maybe what I did 10 years ago, if you've never done this, was a sin. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error in judgment. It wasn't a failure. It was a sin. It was wrong. And I decided to do it. And that's a sin. And when we do that, we begin to open up our lives to God. And we can begin to overcome not the sins of the past, we can't change them, but we can't ask forgiveness, but we change the future and keep ourselves from doing the same things we've done in the past in the future. And maybe we confess to God, maybe we also confess to somebody else. Maybe we go to a human being and say, you know what? This has become a huge burden to me. I need to talk to someone about it. I need someone to help me be accountable on this. I've got to get this out. And sometimes that can help us move into the future without that same temptation, that same sin overpowering our future as well. So confess the sins of the past. Second, know your weaknesses. Look, look at what the past looks like. Okay, see the patterns. When we begin to confess the sin of the past, then we just might notice these are the areas of weakness. I'm not trying to fool God. I'm not trying to fool myself. I see it. And when we begin to understand those weaknesses, we can see, okay, this, this right here is an area I've got to keep my eye on. I've got to change some kind of behavior. I've got to change some kind of thinking that will keep me from doing the same thing I've done before. It only happens when we can confess what we've done before. Then we can identify, where am I weak? And that's going to be different for all of us. We are not all susceptible to the same temptations. Now, human nature is human nature, so we'll find some commonalities. 
We'll find some pockets where we are similar in different groups in the room, but, but we're all different. And so we have to look in our own lives and see this is my area or areas of weakness. Because then I can begin to take some action. Then I can do something about it. Because then I can do number three, which is stay away from dangerous situations. Now, dangerous situations, avoiding them may, again, look different for each one of us because we are all different. It might be for some of us, there's just some people in our lives that and it's better if we stay away from them. Because if I confess the sins of the past and identify my areas of weakness, what I might find is there's a group of people who are present in all of those. And they are just taking me in the wrong direction. And I've got to be really careful if I'm going to be around those people. And I might even need to avoid those people because it is destructive. It's leading me from desire to temptation to sin, and if I'm not careful, that's going to lead me to death. So I've got to be careful with those people. Maybe there are certain literal places, like there are locations that you need to avoid. Because for you, something like alcohol is a temptation. And being in a bar, as much as it might feel comfortable, and as much as you might enjoy being around those people, you know is a dangerous situation. So that can be very different for lots of us. But, but what we need to do is say, okay, here's the beginning of the action. Now what we'd like to say is, <clears throat> I'm so strong spiritually that I can be in those situations or the, with those people at that location and I can resist the temptation. Well, maybe. Maybe not. Okay? Your spiritual strength may lie not in putting yourself back in the dangerous situation and resisting the temptation. Your spiritual strength may be a step back to say, I'm not putting myself in that position because you know what? I'm probably going to fail. And maybe that feels a little bit like weakness. Maybe it feels like I should be able to walk in there and say no. I should be able to be with those people and not act like them. But maybe you know you can't do that yet. And so spiritual strength for you is taking a step back and saying, I'm going to avoid that because it's not going to be good. Fourth thing, this could have been first, could be last, should be all the way through. It's just the word pray. If we're really facing temptation, one of the ways that we respond to that temptation is to pray, to ask God for help to overcome whatever the temptation is. Okay? When we back up a little bit in this passage, remember what we said was, if you need wisdom, James says, if you need wisdom, what I want you to do is ask God for wisdom. Now that's a theme that runs all the way through the book of James. And when he begins to describe what temptation looks like, what sin looks like, and where it leads this progression, you know what that is? That's just wisdom. That's wisdom. That's Christian wisdom at work. And so, if we're struggling with temptation and we're struggling along that progression of sin from desire to destruction and we need help, which we all do, part of our response should be to ask God for that help. None of us 
is strong enough to withstand every temptation. Not one of us. We are all sinners. We're all in the same boat. And we all need God to help us through this. Because we can't do it on our own. Not one of us. We all need God's help. Now, let's back up a little bit. At the beginning, I said, hey, you know what? Christians think we should talk more about sin and temptation. Non-Christians go, why do y'all talk about sin and temptation so much? Here's why. Why does the Bible set up all these rules and regulations? It feels like we're always talking about that. Because God knows something about us. God created us. He knows everything about the way our brains and our spirits, our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts. He knows all of that. He knows the desires that He created within us and the desires that seem to come from somewhere else. And because God knows all that, He knows the power of desire and temptation. And He knows that when we allow that to be sin, it can and it will destroy us without Him being involved. And so because God knows us so well, part of what we find in Scripture are the, the rules, the guidelines, the thoughts, all of this that can help us avoid destruction. God, God knew the things to put in place to keep us safe, and it's when we get outside those bounds that it gets really dangerous. Here's one other thing I know. <clears throat> the church, we as Christians, have a powerful potential to impact the people around us in our community, and as the culture at large. But we mess that up over and over when we give in to sin and temptation. Because then the world says, you know what, they're just like us. They do the same stuff we do. They don't look any different from us. And there's some truth in that, because we are sinners. But you know, we have the potential as Christians, because God's Spirit is at work in us to be different. And, and if we would just listen to James here, say, I'm going to have to identify the sin, the temptation, that I am the weakest to overcome, and allow God to be at work in those places. Think about the impact that we could have. Just our church in this community, if we showed our community that we really are different, that, that sin does not overpower us, and because of that, we are not destroyed by sin, what a witness that would be of the power of God at work in His people. Let's pray together. And we're thankful you're a powerful God. More powerful than sin or temptation. More powerful than the spiritual death that we sometimes seem to be walking toward. So God, we pray today that you would be at work in us. That you would help us to, to see desire for what it is. To understand it. To make sure it is not destroying us. God, we know we can only do that if your spirit is at work 
in us. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today it might be that you recognize, you know what, sin has been at work in my life, and I'm ready for that to change, and I'm ready for the power of God to be at work in a new way in Jesus Christ. You're ready to put your faith in Him, to repent of that sin, which means, hey, I feel bad about it, I don't like it, and I want to change, and then to be baptized into Him. If you're ready to make that decision, let us know. Come forward as we sing our invitation. Let's stand together.